there was also something else going on Monday night at the University of Kansas campus, uh, another worship event. Uh, so if you're not attending that at 7, if you will go to the room across from Woodruff where Open Swim is held, Open Swim starts around 9, but across, this, across there at 7 will be the game on a big screen and some snacks and so forth. So if you are going to the game, you can do that and then hit Open Swim, but if you do go to the game, uh, you can have your post-game uh, celebration, worshiping God for significant things. So please uh, take note. And then today, after lunch, after worship, will be lunch for college students. So if you're a university student, graduate student, or a campus ministry person, um, we're having lunch in room three, and we'll spread out around there. So please, um, so please come. So immediately after the service, just head on back, and it uh, will be done in about an hour or so. But we'll feed you perhaps the best lunch you've had in a while, so please, please accept our invitation for that. And now we come to the scripture. Let me ask if you would please to, um, to bow and pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and uh, we've sung of your amazing and wonderful love and grace. And now, Father, we will hear more directly we trust from you concerning that. So help us now as we come to this word. Open up our hearts and minds. Uh, forgive us our sins. Um, enable us to, to really understand. Turn please to 1 Peter in chapter 5. I want to read verses 12 through 14. 1 Peter chapter 5, 12 through 14. Hear the word of God. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, peace to all of you who are in Christ. We come really in terms of what we're doing with First Peter to the close of this letter. I must say, and rather apologetically, the 33rd sermon on this particular letter. I was a bit surprised to count all those up. Maybe you're not. Uh, I don't know who won the bet in my family, but Gracie did. They always wager something. I don't know. I don't know if you actually know. You just guess, try to guess how long it would take me to get through something. Uh, Gracie won, I hear. Good. Did you win anything? No? Uh, we could have rigged it. Um, I'm not going to deal with the last sentence here that says, peace to all of you who are in Christ, because we've already considered that on the second Sunday of Advent, as you might remember. And I'm not also going to deal with the kiss of love, as you might guess. Um, except to say that it was culturally conditioned, that there are affectionate uh, ways to show affection, and the way of showing affection in the days of Peter was to kiss uh, we find that true even in that culture today, but there certainly are uh, ways of affection uh, in our culture, be it a hug, a warm handshake, and on occasion, I suppose, a kiss, but we'll just leave it there. The, um, we have some information about Peter's whereabouts. He says that he is at Babylon, which is no doubt symbolic for Rome. Uh, Babylon was the height of worldliness in the Old Testament days, Rome, the height of worldliness in New Testament days. Uh, the Apostle John uses Babylon as, as a symbolic name for Rome as he writes in the Revelation, and so we suspect 
and what we know about history and Peter's whereabouts at the time he wrote this letter, he was likely to be in or close to Rome. Uh, it comes from she who is likewise chosen, no doubt the church in Rome. Peter was around uh, other Christians there in that uh, church, uh, likewise chosen. Peter's already mentioned that these to whom he writes are elect to the chosen ones of God as all Christians are, and we understand that. And so Peter is talking about their electness. Here's another church uh, of chosen ones. He sends greetings. He's there with Mark, his son. Mark is probably not his natural son, but yet, as the Apostle Paul spoke of Timothy and others, his son in the faith, very close. And this particular Mark is no doubt Mark of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John fame, the gospel writer giving his uh, gospel that kind of apostolic credibility. Uh, and so uh, he's with Mark. He says, by Silvanus, uh, a faithful brother as I regard him, Silvanus was probably either his secretary or perhaps the one who carried this letter uh, for him. Uh, Silvanus was a very faithful brother, as he says, a rather well-known man in the New Testament church. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll find his name to be translated as Silas. And so he traveled with Paul, he traveled with Peter, and so he was a very influential man in the early church. That gives us some sense of the, the, the reality of Peter's situation, real people, real places, real life. But what I want to concentrate our attention on this morning is this uh, part of verse 12, which begins, as I have it in this version, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So when you come to the end of this letter, if you're asking the question, so what? If you're asking the question, all right, now what? Now what do I do with all this information? Peter says, here's what to do. Stand firm in this. And the reason that he has confidence to say, stake your whole life on this, don't budge from what I've told you, is because he's saying this is the true grace of God. There is no other grace. This is the true grace of God. Therefore, he says, stand in it. Don't budge. A grace, obviously, is significant in the context of Peter's letter, so much so that he begins, even in verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 2 of chapter 1, with this ending sentence there, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace so significant. He says, I want it multiplied to you. I want it poured out upon you. It's as if Peter's saying, I want it niagara to you. It's that kind of sense of abundance, that there's this continual flow of grace. And as we read through the scripture, we find it to be this central concept, this central idea. In fact, even in the Old Testament, as we begin just... In Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned, we see the grace of God. We see the grace of God in his promise to send one who will crush the head of this evil one, crush the head of this serpent. And that's grace, you see, because it's undeserved. Adam and Eve deserved to be condemned, to be cast away, but he said, I'm going to, to send someone who will act on behalf of humanity so that not all will need to be cast away. And that's the grace of God, because you see, grace is God's unmerited blessing. It's this unmerited favor of God. We spoke of grace a couple of weeks ago, uh, so I'm not going to drive it as deeply then and now as I did then, I don't suppose. But, but grace really is God's blessing to sinners, that is for those who've rebelled against God. Grace is God's blessing to sinners who really deserve his wrath. And so we made note of the fact that grace is something that's undeserving of us. We're not deserving of grace. We don't get what we deserve. But also, 
it's ill-deserved, meaning that we actually get what we don't deserve. You know, we, deserve we deserve hell, and we get heaven. So it isn't that we just simply don't get what we deserve. We, we get what we don't deserve. We get the blessing of heaven. It isn't that we just don't get death. We get life. It isn't that we just don't get cast out from the presence of God, but we're adopted into his, into his family. And you see, grace can't really be understood apart from this notion of sin. If we don't understand sin and its depths, and we don't embrace it in the context of the reality of our own lives, and we don't understand and believe the significance of it in its penalty, then, then grace will just sort of be a blasé idea to us. But you see, the, the nature of sin is that it grips us and enslaves us. And the penalty for sin, because it's against God, is eternal condemnation. And when we grips of something which keeps us enslaved, thus helpless, and the only way it can be broken is if someone comes in stronger than this sin and breaks it, and we understand that the penalty for it really is eternal condemnation, really is hell, and that someone must come and free us from that penalty, then we won't understand grace. See, we think sin is just sort of being bad. And I suppose it is being bad, but understand being bad in the right ways. Sin gets in the very nature of our hearts. It gets really down to why we do what we do. And thus, even that which appears to be good could really be sin in the context of our lives. For instance, if you say to me, yes, I love my parents, or yes, I love my children, the real question is why? Do you love them because it's a good idea to you? Do you love them because there's a measure of reward in that for you? Do you love them because as you look at all things considered, you say, well, loving is the right thing to do. If that's your only motivation, it's sin. It's rebellion against God. The real reason that we love is because God said this is the way it's to be. And we love in honor of him. We love because of him. We love because it's his wisdom, not ours. We don't put ourselves in the place of God so that we can make what is right and wrong, but we listen to him. But you see, our own hearts is, would rather be in the place of God. We'd rather be the ones who determines what is good and evil. And that's really the essence of sin. And that's really the problem with us all. And you see, we're in grips of, we're, in grip, we're gripped by that sin. It has us by the throats. And something needs to come and break that. And so God comes. We see that in the context of the whole scripture. We see it in this calling of this man named Abraham in the Old Testament. He becomes Abraham. In fact, we get to Genesis chapter 12 where Abraham, Abraham is really first introduced. And it's a rather startling chapter because we haven't heard of this guy hardly before. And we wonder, what's the big deal about him? Well, the big deal about him is simply that God has come and invaded his life. It isn't that he deserved God to come and invade his life. He, he, God just does. And he blesses him. And he starts us on this, this right path of saying that there's righteousness that comes from God that is by faith, not because of anything that we're able to earn or do. Because the scripture says of Abraham that he believed God and it was counted as righteousness. And then we come up to Moses. And we see that God gives to Moses the law, which is the very grace of God. And it's grace because, first and foremost, God reveals himself to the people. 
And he does it through this law. He says, this is who I am. I'm the one who has created you. And I'm the one who's delivered you. Thus, you should worship me and me alone. That's my value. That's who I am. I am the one to be worshipped and no one else. And then he says, you're to obey me. That is, you're to love each other as well. You're to be faithful as I am faithful. And you're to be satisfied in all that I provide for you. And so by the grace of God, he reveals through the law who he is. But even more than that, he says, if you break this law, if you rebel against it, there's a way you can be restored to me. And it's a way completely that I'll provide. I'll provide a representative to come to me on your behalf. We'll call him a priest. And he'll be clothed in cleanliness and righteousness to be able to come to me, God says, on your behalf. And then I'll give a substitute. And rather than taking your life, I'll take the life of this animal. And so we see the picture of this grace of God through the course of the Old Testament. It's why David could sing the way that he did. On one particular occasion, David began to sing by saying, Thy loving kindness is better than life. Thus, while I live, my lips will praise you, and I will lift up my hands in your name. Because, you see, he saw in God's provision loving kindness. That's not a word we use very often anymore, loving kindness. In more modern versions, it's translated steadfast love, because that's what it is. It's God sticking to us in love. But this grace of God is his commitment to honor his promise to save. Thus, David would say, if I could have loving, the loving kindness of God, the steadfast love of God, or life, I would rather have the loving kindness of God, for that will see me all the way through eternity. And then we come to the New Testament, and we see that Jesus is the very embodiment of this undeserved favor. We see that Jesus is the, is the very embodiment of this grace. For instance, in John in chapter 1 and verse 14, the apostle writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the one who is true truth, and the one who is full of grace. We can rely upon him, and yet he comes to us, and, and we don't deserve him. Because you see, he's coming to us as God's grace. He's coming to us to be our representative before God. He's coming to us to be this very sacrifice for us, this substitute. It's the very grace of God, this Jesus. So the Apostle Paul could say, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of yourself, for it's the gift of God, this grace, this salvation. You see, our only hope, our only hope is that God will do something to save us. For we can't save ourselves. And he says, all right, by grace I will save you. Thus we need him to come and to act in such a way that will call us, that will change our hearts, that will pay the penalty of our sin, that will live a perfect life, that will strengthen us to continue to persevere. And of course, he does that. For the Father elects us, chooses us, and puts us on this, sends his Son to be this very one who will live for us and die for us and rise. And he gives us his Spirit who will set us apart and call us out and change our very lives and enable us to believe and save us. And that's the very grace of God. And it's interesting to me that when celebrities die, as one did this past week. 
at least a celebrity from my era. Actually, he's a lot older than me, but. But we speak of their successful life. We speak of all the contributions that they've made in the context of, of life and how they've impacted us in positive and good ways. And I suppose that's a good way to speak of them that die. But never is there any mention that without the grace of God, then we'll never know the real purpose for which we're to live, to glorify him. And we'll never be able to do that without God's graciousness to us. And if someone hasn't received the grace of God through the Lord Jesus, then their life really isn't a success from eternity's perspective. And not only that, no one ever seems to mention the devastating consequences of hell. And when we begin to reflect like that, we understand the greatness of the grace of God. To realize that we need that grace, that we need him to come and do on our behalf. We need him to come and rescue us and save us and redeem us and all of that, which he does in Jesus Christ. And so when Peter writes to this people, he wants, he wants to tell them, I want you to know the true grace of God and I want you to stand in it. I don't want you to move from it. Because you see, this grace is not only that which initially justifies us and saves us and brings us this great gift of eternal life, but this grace also empowers us to live. Uh, for instance, turn to 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. In verse 10, uh, well, let me begin with verse 9. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes this. I'll give you a second to get that. He writes, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So the apostle is saying, look, God's grace empowered me to do the work that I'm doing. If you would ask Paul, Paul, how is it that you can work harder than everyone else? He would say, well, yes, I do work harder than everyone else. But not I. It's God's grace that's working in me, that's empowering me. In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 12, and verse 10, he puts it like this. Well, let me begin with verse 7. Paul's just explained the fact that he's been able to see these great revelations. So he puts it up to the third heaven. So verse 7, he says, So to keep me from being too elated or puffed up by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, my power, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, here Paul so juxtaposes grace and power to show that one, in a sense, is a synonym for the other. God says to him, my grace is sufficient, explanation, for my power, that is my graciousness, my power is made perfect in weakness. And you see, this grace of God that comes to bring salvation to us doesn't stop there, but rather it empowers us then to live as God would have us live. In Hebrews, in chapter 4, 
and verse 16. The author of Hebrews says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, when we have a need, when we need strength, what we're really after is grace. And it's grace because it isn't deserved. You can't just burst in on God and say, this is what you owe me. I've, I deserve to be in your presence, and I deserve this power. No, we come in the name of Jesus always. Because we don't deserve to be in God's presence inherently. We simply deserve to be cast aside. But we come in the name of Jesus. And he gives grace. And so you see, this grace saves and this grace strengthens, which would have been great news, you see, to, to the people to whom Peter was writing. This great news to the people to whom Peter was writing about this, this grace was that even though you're suffering and even though you're being persecuted for your faith and even though you're experiencing all these various trials, there's strength and help. And you don't have to do something first in order to earn it from God. You don't have to pay for it. In fact, you can't. The only way that you can receive it is from his gift. And so go to this God of grace, and he will help you. And so that's why Peter wrote his letter. He wrote it so that they could receive grace. Notice what he says. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting, declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So everything that Peter has written to them has been an exhortation about grace or a declaration about grace so that they'd be able to receive this gift from God and be able to stand in it so that they'd survive, so they'd persevere, so their faith would grow stronger and not be destroyed. And when he speaks of these exhortations, he's speaking of various commands that he's giving them, giving them as to how they're to live. And when he talks about these declarations or his testimony or as he testifies, he's making these statements of fact to them about what is true because of what God has done. And so as we work through and as we have worked through over these number of months this epistle, what we find is that Peter began with these declarations, statements of fact. He says, these statements of fact are true, and I want you to stand firm. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise. You have been chosen by God. You're the elect one. So God has initiated with you. God has come to you. He's the one who has come to you first. If you believe in him, he's the, you know that it's because he's chosen you. And he sanctified you by the Holy Spirit, meaning he's given you his spirit, and he set you apart very special so that you would receive the blessing of salvation. And he sprinkled you with the blood of Christ, meaning that his promise was confirmed and ratified by nothing less than the costly blood of Christ. And then he goes on to say that he's caused you to be born again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, meaning that he's worked in you to give you this new life. It isn't something you came up with on your own. He says, never forget the fact that you're the product of the work of God, and he gave you new life. He chose you, sanctified you, ratified it by the blood of Christ, given you new life so that you can have hope because Jesus has risen from the dead. That's true. Don't let anyone dissuade you from that. And because he's risen from the dead, he's alive, thus you have hope because he's the giver of life. And not only that, you have an inheritance. And this inheritance can never perish or spoil or fade because it's being guarded by God, kept in heaven for you by faith. So it's there. 
Don't ever think that there isn't anything at the end of this. There is. It's the very inheritance that is yours because you belong to Christ. And then he goes on to say, these trials that you're experiencing that may seem purposeless aren't because they're given to you so that your faith will be tested, not so that you can fail the test, but that you will see that the faith that you have is really genuine. So genuine, you see, that it actually brings with it. But now that you know all of that, I want you to stand in that grace. I don't want you to budge from it. I want you to live there. And then as you live there, this will be the reaction. This will be the response. This will be how you're to live. He says, now I want you to set your hope fully on the revelation that's to be brought to you. I'm sorry, of the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying there's more grace even to come. I mean, this grace that you've experienced thus far is great, but there's more grace even to come. God has a, a gift for you yet. And that gift is that when Jesus returns, everything will be conformed to his image. And don't forget that. Don't think this is all that there is. There's something more even to come, and that more even to come is even greater than you've ever seen. Because what you'll see when this grace comes is everything reflecting the perfection of Christ, even you, so set your hope there. And if your hope's there, then he says, be holy, for God is holy. And not only that, he says, I want you to understand because the salvation has been bought with such a great price that it should prove to you the, the surpassing value of Jesus himself that you should live in reverent fear, that you should revere nothing else other than Christ himself. And if that's true of you, and that work has been done in you, what you'll find yourself doing and what you must do is to love each other with a brotherly love. To stand there. Don't, don't ever budge from those things. Don't budge from putting your hope on the coming of Jesus. Don't ever budge from knowing that God is holy, thus you are to be holy as you reflect him. Don't ever budge from the fact that you're to fear him and hear him alone and no one else. Don't let anyone influence you other than God and his truth. And certainly love each other. But then he comes down to some more. Don't understand that you're being built as a spiritual house, brick upon brick, person upon person. And the purpose of you becoming a spiritual house is that you can be a holy priesthood. And the reason you need to be a holy priesthood is that priests offer sacrifices to God. And the sacrifice that you're to make as one for whom it is true that you're a spiritual house, the sacrifice that you're to make is the sacrifice of praise. Because you're a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a royal priesthood, and you're to declare the excellencies of him who called you out of, his, out of darkness and put you into his marvelous light. He says, for once you weren't a people, but now you are. And once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have. He says, so the purpose of your life, the very grace of God to you, is that you're to live in such a way as declares his praises. That's the very purpose of your life. And he says, since that's the purpose of your life, here's you, how you do that. First of all, you're to abstain from these worldly passions and the passions of your flesh because they're warring against your soul with the hope of killing it. So he says, the way that you live is that you abstain from those passions, but rather live in an honorable way, in a way that honors God. And as you live in a way that honors God, then you see there'll be others who actually may think that you're an evildoer because you're the intolerant one. 
You're the one who keeps saying there's only salvation through faith in Christ and no other way. And even as they speak about you as an evildoer, there'll be a day when they'll glorify God. And then he says, you shouldn't use this newfound freedom in Christ as a way to simply reject everything around you, but rather you should be in submission to those in authority because God has placed those in authority over you. And in fact, when you do that, you'll silence some of the ignorant ones who have come against you. And he said, even if you find yourself in a situation that you can't get out of morally or legally or ethically, like a slave to a master even, you find yourself in such a situation and even if you're experiencing treatment that's unjust, he says, continue to submit. Because the grace of God to you in that situation will be the very fact that that's what happened to Jesus. He was in a situation where he was treated unjustly. And you will learn to do exactly what he did, which is the grace of God to you, which is to entrust yourself to the one who judges justly, and God will bless you. Women, wives, if you are married to an unbeliever, and he hasn't broken the covenant relationship by adultery, and he still wants to be your husband, though he be an unbeliever and have no interest at all in the word of God, still submit to him, because that's the grace of God to you. And the blessing of God is that it may well be that he's one to the faith. And he says to husbands, Love your wives in an understanding way. That's the grace of God to you. That's how you do it. Not that husbands could ever misunderstand their wives. But he says, husbands, love your wife in an understanding way. Don't take advantage of the fact that God has placed you as head over her and that he's commanded her to submit to you. Don't take advantage of that, but understand that you're to live together as heirs of the grace of life, joint heirs of the grace of life. And if you ever get this out of kilter, you'll find that it inhibits your prayers. Because that's the grace of God to you, husband. And then he says to the whole church, he says, now continue to, to be in unity together. Stick together, stay together. But as the world comes against you, don't repay evil for evil. Don't revile back, but rather bless them. In the same sense that Jesus has blessed those who curse you. He says, that, I don't know what God's gift is. It's that power, that ability, that wisdom to be able to bless even when you're being cursed. And he says, because there's a great ultimate blessing to the end of this, because you see, when they come against you in this particular way, some will come to you and say, tell me why you still have hope. When we're taking everything away from you, when we're persecuting you in various ways, how is it that you can still have hope? And you see, there comes the great grace of God. Because at that moment in time, you get to share with them the reason for the hope that is in you. And at that moment, you'll say, there's nothing better than this. And then he goes on to say that our Lord Jesus has already suffered in the flesh, so we need to arm ourselves with the same thinking that he has, especially about sin. So he says, don't waste your time with it. Don't waste your time in this kind of debauchery. Now, now, people will try to get you to do that with them all the time, and they'll criticize you for not going along with them. But he says, no, no, no. Understand that, that Christ has come to do away with that. So don't live in it. But understand that when Christ returns, there's great grace for you, but judgment for them.
So be sober-minded. See, the grace of God to us is to really see as they are, to understand the seriousness of life, to understand the holiness of God, to understand our need for grace, to understand the reality of hell. And so he says, be sober-minded so that you can pray, so that your prayers aren't frivolous, so that your life isn't just a measure of trivial pursuit, but it's real. And then he says, keep loving each other. You need that. Be hospitable to each other without grumbling. And continue in the midst of even the suffering of life to serve each other. That is to put others' interests ahead of your own, even if you're one of the ones being persecuted, even if you find yourself in the midst of suffering. Because you see, when you do, you'll see the glory of God and it will reveal itself in grace all over the place to help people in times of need. And then he goes on to say, don't be surprised then. See, the grace of God to us is this fabulous wisdom. He says, don't be surprised when you, when you suffer, when you're insulted for the sake of Christ. But rather, here's the grace of God. Rejoice. Because when you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, he says. And the Spirit of God and of Christ is upon you. And then he goes to elders and he says, continue to shepherd the flock. The grace to you is to shepherd them without reward monetarily, but to shepherd them in love. And he says to everyone, be humble. Because the way that you receive this grace is not by being proud and self-sufficient, but by being humble and honestly saying, I can't, I need you. Because you see, you can't just barge in on God and say, here are my troubles, could you deal with it? But you can barge in on God in the name of Jesus. For he has won the way. Express your love to me in Christ. And I believe in him. And you said that I belong to you. Here are my cares. And he does care for you. He gives us the wisdom to say, but life is serious. There's still an evil presence. There's still the evil one who's rounded about and he's ready to devour anyone. So continue to keep the faith and hold it strong. Because... That way. And at the end of all that, Peter says, now let me give you some facts again. Here's the grace of God to you. That a day will come when the God of all grace will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. And don't ever forget this. God is sovereign over all. God to you. To hang on to all of that says, because you see, that is the blessing of God to us. That's the purpose of our lives. And you say, well, how does this grace of God come? Well, first, he says that grace comes to us in the context of humility when we say, I can't. My wisdom doesn't suffice. My strength isn't adequate. I can't do this. And he says, all right, great, come to me. And it begins, of course, in coming to Jesus because he is the very manifestation of the grace of God. And we say, I can't. I, I can't be good enough. I can't be strong enough. All I can do on my own is earn your disfavor, so I come in Jesus, and I trust that he's lived for me because I can't, and I trust that he's died for me to take the penalty of my sin. And it begins there, you see. And we admit we can't. And he says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then secondly, there is this perpetual posture of the Christian, 
I've said this so many times, all I should have to say is Psalm 81.10. I know you're thinking, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to pretend like I do, and I'll look at him with a smile. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. That posture never changes for Christians. We never get good at this. We never become independent of him. We never become autonomous of him. We never say, okay, God, I've got it. You just watch. You'll be so proud of me. It's always in humility, always needing this perpetual rush of grace that he gets the glory. And then finally this, and this is an obvious point. He wrote them this because this is the grace of God. And he says, as you learn this, as you meditate upon this, as it flushes through your system, that brings grace. You remember, it was Moses who said, these words are not idle words for you. These words are your life. See, these are more than just words on the page, words of speech. These are the very words of God. And the very word of God packs grace. Faith comes from hearing, the scripture says, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so the way that we grow in faith is that we hear the word and we see it and we apply it and we live in it. That's why God would speak these words to Joshua. You know them, Joshua 1, 8, where God says to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your, uh, from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. He says, listen, the book of the law should never depart from your mouth, meaning that always your speech should be informed by the truth. That which you say needs to be informed by this truth, this grace of God. And he says it shouldn't leave your mind, that every thought that you have should be informed in some way by the truth of Scripture. That's the grace of God to you. That's the power of God at work. That's what the Apostle Paul meant in part when he says that we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That is, every thought that comes into our minds should in some sense go through this grid that says, what's the Bible say about this? What's the truth of God about this? And that should fill our minds and fill our mouths, you see. And then he says, then you'll have success, meaning your faith will succeed. Your faith will be strong. You will persevere. You will see the grace of God in every one of these aspects, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. Don't let anyone get you to stop thinking about that. Don't let anyone stop you from living that out. Stand firm in this grace. And then you see, he says, if you do, this is the obtaining of your salvation. This is growth in salvation. This is what it means to declare the praises of God, to live for the very purpose for which he's made you. This may well be the very grace of God and the outcome of a husband coming to faith. This may be the opportunity in order to, to, to share the reason for the hope that is in you. This is the way that you come to know the blessing of God where his spirit of glory is upon you. This is the way to captivate you like that. Nothing will bless you like that. Let's pray, Father in heaven. So much could come against us to keep us from standing, the world telling us 
that we're really not that bad, we really don't need that much, that there's really something we ought to do in order to come into the presence of God. And surely we're able to do some of this on our own. Father, I pray that we never are shaken from this true grace, but stand firm in it and rely upon you and you alone at every turn and stand firm. Thank you, Jesus' name. Amen. As our worship team comes to lead us in these songs, we are singing now to respond, really, to this, to interact. And thus we sing about Jesus, my cross, I, my cross, have taken. It was our Lord Jesus who commanded us to take up our cross and follow him, that is, to put to death all that isn't of him, and to follow him, and though the world despises us yet, we shall walk in his grace, and to know him is to know life, and we shall live under the king. Please stand. Jesus, I my cross have taken, fall to thee, then follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be, perish every fond ambition, all I've sought, all with 
Change to that. 